Welcome to episode 15 of the VMAS podcast, where we'll be discussing the book of Numbers. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So today, we'll begin looking at the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers takes its name from the census that begins the book. Does this name capture the message of the book, or should we see something else? If you remember the book of Leviticus, we said the name doesn't really help us understand what's right. going on in that book. I think Numbers is very similar. Uh, the Hebrew title for <clears throat> excuse me for the book is In the Wilderness, coming from first verse of the book. Uh, it really helps us to see what this book is about. Uh, it's the book that follows Israel through 40 years in the wilderness. It's a book that explains why the first generation will die in the wilderness uh, and how God will prepare his people for uh, the promised land. So it's more than just numbers, more than just lists of names. Uh, it really gives us a historical narrative from Sinai all the way to the plains of Moab, uh, where the people of God are waiting to go into the land. A couple of things, just thinking big picture about the book. Uh, historically, the book has many important stories that the New Testament will pick up. So Psalm 95, which is quoted in Hebrews 3 and 4, uh, speaks of God's people dying in the wilderness. And that all comes from what happens in Numbers. Uh, Jude recalls the sins of Korah from number 16. Um, John 3 uh, talks about the serpent lifted up on a pole. Uh, that's from Numbers 21. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about people being given to Jesus. That comes from Numbers 25 and Psalm 68. So there's a lot here uh, beyond Numbers. Um, and practically, it reminds us that as the people of God are going through a wilderness, uh, as we ourselves experience times where it feels like we're going through a wilderness, uh, there's a great deal of learning that can be done for the people of God today, uh, especially about God's character, His holiness, His grace, and all that He has done to save His people. So when we look at um, Numbers, and we look at the first verses, 1 and 2, let's go ahead and read that. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of all the people of Israel by clans, by fathers, houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. What was the purpose of the census? Yeah, so you think of another place in the Bible where we find a census doesn't go so well, right? Yeah. David. Yeah, right. Yep, that's right. Right, so David takes a census, and we can ask, why was God so upset with that? I think part of it was because David was showing and learning of his strength and the strength of his army to be able to show himself mighty against other nations around him. Mm -hmm. There's something similar for the purpose of the census, except for the fact that it wasn't Moses' idea. It was what God was having them do at this time. And what we see is that it's taking a census, is taking account of the number of men who would be able to go to war. Right? So one of the things that we're going to see, the people of God moving out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land, is that God's justice is going to come upon the promised land, as he told Abraham back in Genesis 15. And so now it's taking a number of those who are going to be this priestly army for the people of God. Uh, however, in the book of Numbers, there's actually two censuses. I looked it up. It's not sensi, but censuses. <laughs> uh, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 26. It shows the difference between the first generation and the second generation. So just the first purpose of the census was to organize the people of God as a priestly army uh, going into the land. Uh, for the book itself, the book is um, ordered and organized uh, by these two censuses, right? Moving from the 600,000 or so in the first generation to the 600,000 plus in the second generation. 
And in between, we see what God does with his people in the wilderness, which goes back to that verse 1 of God's time and place with God's people there uh, in the desert. What are some surprising observations when you consider the number of warriors from each tribe? I think it's a good question. When you think of surprising observations there, Anton, what, what are you getting at? I realize that the multitude in general was so was so great. So I'm thinking in bondage, um, it showed how the Israelites grew in masses from when they were, you know, um, originally in Egypt to now they're they're not in Egypt. Um, that was the first thing that struck me. It was just the, the sheer amount of people. That's right. Yeah. No, I think it's really helpful because, again, the total number that's being counted there are, are the men. So it's not even the total number. So right. uh, most scholars will um, kind of have the total number between 1 million and 2 million people mm-hmm. who came out of Egypt through the wilderness into um, to Canaan. And so it's amazing. It, I mean, God's promise to be fruitful, multiply, or the command and then the promise that they would be a multitude of offspring uh, for Abraham has come true, uh, even as they are under bondage there in Egypt. But of course, what hasn't come true yet in the book of Numbers is a place for the people of God to live, right? So one of the ways that we've talked about just how you can kind of see the whole storyline of the Bible is that in the very beginning, God put his people in his place under his rule, mm-hmm. right? And when Adam and Eve sinned, all of that was lost. And God's plan of redemption then was to, again, create a people to bring them into his place under his rule. And in the Exodus, we see that God has taken that people uh, Israel, the offspring of Abraham, he has saved them. He's given him his rules uh, there at Sinai. They are his people, and now he's going to be moving them into the land. Uh, mm. And so Numbers is that book that's leading in that direction. As you talk about literary structure, should we see a literary structure in every book of the Bible? Yeah, I think so. Um, So again, when we go back to Genesis, we saw that Moses structured that according to 10 toledotes. That's uh, in the generation of Adam or in the generation of uh, Terah, however that goes. So that was structured in that way. In the book of Exodus, we saw that the Passover, the first 18 chapters, was that kind of uh, movement out of Egypt to Sinai. Then the covenant is given at that time, uh, chapters 19 through 24, and the tabernacle is built after that in chapters 25 through 40. Uh, In Leviticus, we see that there was a chiastic structure with the Day of Atonement at the center. And then in Numbers, uh, we find a geographical movement. Mm -hmm. So there's a structure in the book here as well. Uh, When we come into the book of Numbers, we haven't left Sinai. And we won't leave Sinai uh, until chapter 10 and verse 10. These instructions for the Levites continue to be given there at uh, Sinai. From chapter 10 all the way to 21, there's this wandering period. This is where the people of Israel continue to grumble, and, and God does some uh, unique and uh, uh, holy and gracious things for the people of God there as they wander through the wilderness. And then finally, they show up in Moab in chapter 22, and that will take you to the end of the book. Uh, so it seems that there's an intentional geographical structure that is there, not to mention uh, the structuring of the two censuses that are moving from one generation to the next. Uh, so I think there is a visible structure to the book, and when we read it, uh, it helps us to understand what is the purpose of numbers. Uh, because I think one of the things we can do, especially some of these lists, is like, okay, what's the spiritual nugget uh, mm-hmm. that I need to pull out of this? And yet, more than getting just kind of an allegory or a spiritual nugget out of those lists, like how does this fit into the purpose of the whole book? And when we see how it fits in the whole book, then we see what God is doing and how it moves us to Christ and to us. So with that structure in mind, 
going to dive into some verses. Let's start with Numbers 1, 47 through 50. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi shall you not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs in it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all the furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. Why were the Levites exempted from the census? If we remember to read Numbers 1 with Numbers 2 and 3, uh, we'll see that these chapters are drawing a map uh, for God's people. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the book of Numbers, one of the most helpful things to do is to read it with a map next to you. Right. right? Because in the long lists of places, we're just such a visual culture, visual society today, uh, it would be helpful to see graphically what's going on. Right, so that's what's taking place here is that these um, instructions for where the people are going to be placed around the tabernacle is like a series of concentric circles. So think of bullseye uh, with concentric circles around it. Uh, the Holy of Holies is in the very center of that. Mm -hmm. The Levites then live right outside of that, protecting the tabernacle space. Then after that, you have the different tribes around them. And so the Levites are exempted from the census because if we remember that the census was for the army going forward, mm -hmm. well, the Levites were to take their swords to protect the holy place of God, to protect the tabernacle and the holy of holies. Uh, everyone else, the other sons of Israel, were to be the, the warriors who were to go out from there. Right? So that's why they're not included in that census, but they're listed in other passages here in the book of Numbers. When I first heard sermons uh, about the Levites, I think that... Uh, one of the things that uh, I, want, I don't want to say was was wrong, but I took away that was misplaced was that the Levites were only musicians <laughs> and they were, you know, that they led worship. Mm -hmm. But when you read numbers, you see that their role was so much greater yeah. than just uh, leading worship or, or just being that of musicians. That's absolutely right. I mean, so getting that language of... Um, the Levitical musicians mm -hmm. comes from First and Second Chronicles as well as the book of Psalms. Uh, so it's right to think of that. But when we come to Numbers, we see that the Levites were added to the priests mm -hmm. in order to be assistants in the household of God. Right, So the priests, Aaron and his sons, were appointed and chosen by God to serve at the altar. Uh, but we know from Exodus 32 that when they did that, uh, that there was contamination. There was uh, a leading astray of Aaron to make this golden calf. And I think part of it was because the firstborn sons who were to assist him at that time didn't do their work. Right. So what we see in Numbers is the appointment of the Levites to come and to assist Aaron, to guard him, to come alongside with him. And in that... Uh, we see that there's so many ways replacing what the firstborn sons did. Right. Uh, right. Numbers 3 actually talks about that as we have a redemption of the firstborn sons by the Levites to come and assist. And in that role, then, they're guarding uh, the household of God and making a protective barrier between the priests who are serving in the presence of God and the people who are benefited by the priests but who would be contaminating the priests and polluting the priests and that understanding of cleanliness of the people of Israel uh, if there's not these guardians who are there in the house. Right. In chapter 3, God gives specific duties to the Levites. Verses 5 through 10 read as follows. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as a minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of the meeting and keep guard over all the people of Israel as a minister at the tabernacle and shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are holy given to him from among the people of Israel and shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard the priesthood. But if any outsider come near, they shall be put to death. Why were the Levites appointed to guard the priest and the tabernacle? So, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, why were the Levites and not the Reubenites or the Judahites or any of the other tribes selected? Yeah. And I think we have to go back to Exodus 32, right? We've kind of begun to talk about this a little bit to just kind of dive deeper here. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 32 when the golden calf was made and the people were sinning against God? Uh, who stood up to stand with Moses on behalf of God? I mean, it was it was the Levites, right? That's right. Yeah, they, they were the yeah. ones who sided with their brother Moses, and when they did, they took up the sword and they killed three thousand men. That's right. And what's striking about that is that at that moment, it then said that the Levites would be given a place to serve. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty three talks about that it was their obedience and their loyalty to God, even above their above their kinsmen, mm-hmm. that made them worthy to be able to serve in this way, right? And so now they are guardians of the tabernacle because they prove themselves to be faithful unto God, even at the expense of taking the sword against those who would be encroaching against God. And we're going to see this later in the book of Numbers. Actually, we're going to see Levites fail to do this when they allow one of their brothers to come near to the household of God in number the house of God in numbers 25 and Phineas the priest has to leave and go out and kill uh, Cosby and this Israelite man and when we see that we realize okay that's what the Levites were to do mm-hmm. they were to be guardians around there and the reason they were chosen was because of that episode in Exodus 32 wow so also in chapter 3 we see that Moses was commanded to list all the firstborn why was this so important So firstborns in the Old Testament played an incredibly uh, important role. They were the recipients of the blessings, the inheritance was given to them, uh, and the priesthood was given to them. Uh, Before the law was given, those who served at the altar were the firstborn sons. And when Israel sinned with the golden calf, that's where I believe they lost that privileged place. In fact, in Exodus 19, it says that there were priests who were serving uh, there with Moses. But who are those priests? It was before Aaron and his sons were appointed seems as though it was those firstborn sons, those elders in Israel who were serving uh, in this way. Mm -hmm. But as we just mentioned, Exodus 32, all that changed. And now in Exodus, excuse me, in Numbers 3, we see how all of the firstborn sons are going to be redeemed by these Levites. And incredibly, uh, we see that there is a a miscount, right? There were uh, 22,273 firstborn sons. And there are 22,000 Levites. So there are 273 firstborn sons who were not uh, able to be redeemed by the Levites. So they had to have a monetary offering. So it's mm. the, the five shekel, the silver shekel uh, redemption of the firstborn. And this would continue all the way through the Old Testament and into the New. Right? So it's just kind of in the background. right? It's put here in the law. And this is something continue to happen until there was a firstborn son who came who didn't need to be redeemed. Right. Right? And that's Jesus. Right? Here's what's amazing. If we look at Luke chapter 2, verse 23, it picks up this idea of the firstborn son. 
right? And so uh, Luke is going to say, Luke 2, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, they brought Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Luke is bringing all kinds of things together here. One of the things he's bringing together is the fact that this Jesus is not being redeemed by a Levite, but rather he's coming as a true firstborn son who's going to come and redeem the Levites. Right, yeah. Right? Because later in the Old Testament, in Malachi, it says that God is going to come and the messenger of the covenant is going to come and he's going to come and purify the Levites. And in fact, who's the Levite? Who's the priest that is preparing the way here in Luke 2? It's right there, Jesus and John the Baptist, right? So it's all these ways in which that God is bringing about in the life of Jesus to fulfill all that he started in the Old Testament. And where does it go back to? Well, it goes back to at least Numbers 3, where we see that the Levites are redeeming the firstborn sons uh, throughout the Old Testament until the time when the true firstborn son is going to establish a new priesthood that is greater than the priesthood of Aaron with all the Levites, it is instead going to be a priesthood according to Melchizedek, right? And the son of David is going to come and be a greater priest at that time, and he's going to redeem the Levites and beyond. Right. Right? So it's helpful to keep some of those things in mind if we can put all those things together and to see how God is working these things in time to lead us to Jesus. Chapter 5 deals with unclean people. Verses 1 through 4 read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and they put them outside of the camp, as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. Does the word unclean refer to physical or spiritual uncleanliness or both? Yeah, so it's physical, but not probably in the way that we think of physical. Right. right. When we think about clean, unclean, what comes to mind? Washing my hands. Washing my hands. <laughs> Taking a shower. That's right. Yeah. Germs, hygiene, <laughs> right, yeah. all these different things. So, so our understanding of cleanliness or cleanness today is very different than what is being given to us in the law of Moses. Right. right. So the idea there is one of kind of a cultic cleanness. Right. And this is where food in the law was clean or unclean. Mm. Right. And of course, later on in Acts 10, the Lord's going to say that, you know, Peter, go kill and eat. All this food is clean. Right. Um, because the clean, unclean had to do with the law that was given at the time of Moses. Mm-hmm. Right. So in this case, it's physical in the sense that these are all physical effects. I mean, uh, different skin diseases and everything else like that. Those are physical. But again, it's teaching the people that um, of a system of life and death. Right. So in the Old Testament, uh, holiness and cleanness was at the end of the scale of life. Mm-hmm. And death was on the other side of that where it was unclean and it was defiled. Right. And so when a person had these discharges, when they had these different skin diseases, though they were physically alive, they were manifesting in their body signs of death. Mm. And those who had this kind of death could not approach the God of holiness and life. Right. So certainly... Sin made someone unclean, Mm -hmm. but being uh, human as a fallen sinner 
also manifested that and to teach the people and to teach us how to approach God who is holy he had this whole system of cleanness in place right, right? and this is why these different laws that were given for leprosy and everything else uh, were teaching the people of this very um, physical fleshly kind of purity that would be necessary to come into the presence of God and the truth is, I mean, that is also a reality today, but it's on the scale of the resurrection at the end of the age. Right. Right. So these teachings in Numbers and Leviticus are going to be applied to us today in ethical ways, right? So when Paul picks up Leviticus 26 and he applies it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, he does so in a way that is speaking of ethical purity, Right, cleanliness and holiness is not by separating myself from unclean people today, mm-hmm. but it is removing wickedness and sin in my life. It is putting death to sinful practices and habits of thought by the Holy mm. Spirit. Right, but that may mean that it also impacts the way that I live my life yes. in the body. Right, right. So it's not a dichotomy between physical and spiritual, but there is a way that the old covenant is a covenant of the flesh. The new covenant is kind of the spirit, mm-hmm. but even the new covenant, the covenant of the spirit, is one day going to result in a new heavens and a new earth, right. a new creation and a resurrection. It's physical. So I think it's helpful to see the way that the Bible is talking about flesh and spirit, physical and spiritual, is not exactly the way that we might first think. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Last question. Is there anything we should keep in mind as we read Numbers? So I think, again, about the last question of clean and unclean reminds us that when we read the Bible, we have to read the Bible on its own terms. If we try to define words or terms by our own culture, our English dictionaries, Mm. uh, we miss a lot. Uh, Likewise, if we read passages without consideration for the context of the whole book, we'll struggle. Even those who are so quick to say, well, context is how we have to understand everything, we'll often talk about the chapter before or the chapter after it. And yet one of the things that we're learning as we're going through Moses's five books is like, no, we have to look at the whole book. Right. And then we have to look at the whole book in light of all that Moses has said. Mm-hmm. Right. When we go back to Genesis and we read the fact that there were clean and unclean animals on the ark, well, the law hadn't been given yet. Right. But he's writing that to a people to whom the law had been given. Mm. Right. So it's important to see the whole context of the things that are going on there. And so for numbers, it's massively important to see, okay, this is moving from the first generation to the second generation. Uh, there's going to be all kinds of grumbling that God is going to respond to with judgment. But in the midst of that, there's incredible mercy and grace. Right. And so I think just to keep in mind for the whole book of numbers, this is not just a book about lists. Uh, it's about the Lord, right? Right, And that he is teaching us how to read his book. He's teaching us to know him. And wonderfully, in that process of learning, he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his church and church history to learn these things together. He's given us time to think through these things. Uh, and in those ways, we keep reading the book of Numbers in the light of the whole Bible. And it leads us back to Jesus Christ. Amen. So this concludes today's discussion of the first few chapters of Numbers. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.